Okay. Hey, let's start with a word of prayer. Father, we thank and praise you for another day. You've given all of our life, all the days of our habitation. There's not one of them, oh Lord, we can say that we live by ourselves, by our own power. Lord, you're gracious and good and compassionate, slow to wrath, easy to forgive, oh Lord, when we repent. We thank you, O oh Lord, for Christ's sacrifice, the beginning of the Lenten week, Lord, and let us be somber for the week and also rejoicing in the knowledge that when you went to Jerusalem and your face was facing towards it like flint, that, Lord, you had a mission that you fulfilled and you had us in your mind when you did it. We marvel at the fact that you wrote us in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. And that, O oh Lord, you secured your chosen seed, as Isaiah says, when you were on the cross and finished bleeding out. And literally, O oh Lord, through your blood, initiated, inaugurated a new covenant in your blood, which we even practice, O oh Lord, every month. So we worship you this day. Thank you for the word of God and the living word of God who reigns at the right hand of the Father, even now, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Hosea, Hosea. It's just going to read two verses. It started off. Two verses in the book of Hosea. Starting at verse 1. The word of the Lord which came to Hosea, the son of Bari. During the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the days of Jeroboam, that would be Jeroboam II, the son of Joash, the king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of harlotry, and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. We don't know much about, and of course when I say we, I did not do the research. The scholars do it, we read about it. Um, And uh, what they tell us in their commentaries and other sources is that Hosea is somewhat obscure, very much like Amos. I love Amos, uh, even though I didn't uh, do him, of course. Uh, He preceded Hosea. Amos was a reluctant prophet who was a farmer. I can identify with that. Hosea himself also is a man. He doesn't come from royalty. Uh, Scholars tell us that he's probably from the tribe of Issachar and from the family of Beth Shemesh. Hosea is categorized as a minor prophet. Anybody know why he is considered a minor prophet compared to the major prophets? Yes, his writings were small in terms of amount of writings. His has nothing to do with his status. Others who would be considered major prophets would be Isaiah and Ezekiel, Jeremiah and others. His ministry occurred before the fall of the Assyrian, uh, before the fall of the ten tribes taken over by the Assyrian Empire. Egypt had lost power. Assyria was You could say the next kid on the block, the next world power. 
Which, by the way, uh, uh, you know, this is just a little sideline comment. Average kingdoms last 250 to 450 years. Um, Adolf Hitler said he was going to have a thousand year Reich and he was lucky to have it last approximately 14 years. Uh, Rome, 500 years, depending on how you calculate it. So empires don't last very long, but God uses empires. And we know from actually from the writings of Isaiah that God is going to use the Assyrians to judge the Israelites. Now, Ephraim is another word that is used as a title name for the 10 northern tribes. Israel is another name, but other times when you read your Old Testament, you've got to make certain to whom it's being spoken to because Israel also can describe both north and south parts of the kingdom. But the Assyrians are going to be used, as Isaiah said, as a rod of iron against the children of Israel, those ten northern tribes. And after they get done, by by the way, doing the will of our sovereign Lord, God will punish them for their arrogance. Isn't that something? So God is no fool. He's wise, powerful. From the east, he summons a bird of prey. From a far off land, a man to fulfill his purpose. And yes, even kingdoms and kings to fulfill his purpose. So the Assyrians are a tool for God, and he will still judge their idolatry. We know that the northern kingdom has fallen into idolatry, great idolatry, sometimes referred to as whorish idolatry. You know, the scripture says that those who worship worthless worthless idols are worthless themselves. David said in Psalm 16, he says, those who, um, how's it go? Those who follow idols, uh, will their sins be multiplied? And so a nation, by the way, um, about 50 years of preaching that Hosea did. So he is preaching a message of repentance to a nation that will not listen. He starts out with Jeroboam II, uh, about 30 years before the fall in 722 uh, BC. And there's two major numbers you might want to memorize for your future use when you read your Old Testament in 586, uh, Judah fell in 722, the northern kingdoms fell. And so for about 30 or more years, Hosea preaches um, against Israel for their idolatry. Their sins are multiplying, their sins are great, and it is like harlotry. And therefore we can see the connection between verse 2. We'll talk about the significance of God commanding Hosea to marry a woman of harlotry, what that means and what the analogy is for the nation of Israel, the ten tribes. There is um, what I found out through my reading that actually Hosea ended up becoming a contemporary for the prophets who would preach the same kind of message against Judah. Again, 586, 
Judah falls, Jerusalem falls, 722, so what is that? 722, 622, 522, so approximately 150 years later, after the fall of the Northern Kingdom, you have um, the same prophets before that fall in 586, the preachers who were given to the uh, Southern Kingdom, uh, they pro- uh, proclaimed that uh, repentance, and they also used some of the terminology that Hosea used. For instance, Hosea chapter 2, verse 11, Hosea says, I will put an end to their gaiety. Jeremiah says in chapter 7, verse 34, he says, I will take away their joy and voice of gladness. When God judges, there is no smirk, no happiness, but the full realization that there is no pity and returning back from God. That was actually the, I think, the most profound thing in reading not only Hosea, but the ultimate judgment when when the um, kingdom of Israel, even though under its rulers of the Roman Empire, 70 AD becomes the, you could say, cataclysmic event that says, I'm done, I'm done, I show no more pity to you, the whole of Israel. Hosea spent more time calling the ten northern tribes to repentance than any other prophet. It is, as Jesus says in Matthew 12, it's a kingdom divided by itself. If you uh, allow sin to proliferate, and there's so many contemporary 21st century applications that comes through studying any of the prophets. Hosea, I think, is really a good one to go to. By the way, when Hosea wrote, he wrote, this is a, a collection and portions of his sermons over a period of time. So this is not, this is a collection rather than this being a specific book beginning to end one sermon and one, you could say, state of mind for Hosea in a certain period of time of his ministry. So he spends a lot of time, more so than all the other prophets, to proclaim the judgment of God to come because of Israel's idolatry. Hosea told the Jews, put the trumpet to your lips. In other words, call for yourself. Like an eagle, the enemy, that is Assyria, comes against the house. Why? You're divided against one another. You won't be able to be physically able to uh, to repel them. Uh, this is God's judgment for you. You must submit to it. Just as he actually told the Jews when the Babylonians came, submit to them. This is the will of God. So he says, put the trumpet to your lips like an angel. The enemy comes against the house of the Lord because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. Chapter 8, verse 1 and 2. Ultimately, that is the fulfillment of God's conditional covenantal promise that he gave when Israel was established under the Mosaic Covenant. If you do this, you will be blessed. If you do not do this and obey my laws and my commands, if you do break my covenant, you will be cursed. And so sin comes upon their heads. 
like today, a time of prosperity was what was going on during those 30 years, particularly, especially after Jeroboam II, during the first reign of Zechariah. It was a time of spiritual decay. Hosea brings this up. He says, Israel was a luxuriant vine. He produces fruit for himself. Now, we can't make direct applications. It is not a good way to interpret your Bible by making an application and say, Israel is America, or America is Israel. No, you don't look at your Bible that way. On the other hand, though, when it comes to the pathology of sin, certainly we could use that characteristic of every nation and what sin does in bringing decay and the eventual destruction by the hand of God upon a nation is common. Is common. In one sense, you know, certainly we could never make a comparison that America has broken the covenant that God made with America. That It's not an application we can make. But we can say God judges sin in America. And I wonder what, and maybe even what kind of parallels that might resemble in the age of Hosea. We could say that. Yeah, Mark? I'm just wondering if uh, there are... God has unlimited means. Well, does he probably not? Does he often use the similar means? And that's why we have history, so we can look back and see what's happened in history and realize that you know this is this is probably something we've seen before. Yeah, no question about that. Again, the pathology of sin rather than the pathology of an of a nation under the same covenant. Uh, I think that was one of the mistakes of the Puritans making an equal one for one comparison. When you read many of the commentaries of the Puritans, they they will literally replace um, uh, 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 the church with Israel. They thought America was the promised <clears throat> land. Yeah. When they came. Yeah, and I and I, I I think that's a foundational mistake from an interpretive perspective. Like today, though, of course, in this time of prosperity, there were murders, and these are listed by. Hosea, murders and swearing and stealing and adultery that were common. He says the revolters have gone deep into depravity. Deep into depravity. What do depraved people do? If depravity is the, is the lowest level a human being can go, what does that look like? Okay. Well, that, that's got a lot of truth. I don't think we've seen it yet. That's got a lot of truth to it, but I think, I, I think we're seeing depravity today because we are seeing a Romans 1 scenario transpire. Right? God has given people over to a reprobate mind. I love the text of scripture that says, even though I should describe it to you, you will not listen. You will not hear me. You will not believe. Even with the church in America today, there is no one listening anymore, or very few. Why? Because of their prosperity, partly, right? Because of murder and swearing and stealing and adultery. They even give hearty approval to it, right? The scripture says. The the revolters have gone deep into depravity. And I think the common thread with that, most of all, is spiritual blindness. 
by the way, when you say we believe in the living God and then you go and have relations with a temple prostitute, something's wrong in that place. I just saw the old Methodist church right up here. First time. Remember we had, you were having that discussion with the pastor up there. There's a gay flag right out in front of it now. Is that? Yes, there is. Really? Yeah. I wonder there was such a big crowd there the other day. Yep. 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 Really? Yep. So they, she followed through with what she was still questioning only a year ago. So they walk. <clears throat> yeah, Justin just noticed it this morning. Yep. They walk, Hosea says, and they leave bloody footprints. You know, the Apostle Paul said, I think it's Paul, he says, um, the sins of some men reach judgment ahead of them, and then the sins of others trail behind them. So as Hosea, as a young man, preaching early on, right after or at the very end of Jeroboam II's reign, at the very beginning of Zechariah, the first of six kings that will be the last string of kings, you could say, who were apostate uh, before the ten northern tribes are dissolved by occupation by the Assyrians. Um, God took his time, even during the period of time of Hosea's life, to bring to fulfillment that judgment. So God also may also have us here at Sovereign Grace Chapel preach for some time and we still say, I wonder when the tipping point is. And for Hosea, it was when the Assyrians came in and took over the country, the northern kingdoms at least. The culture resembles ours. Listen to this. Hosea says, let no one find fault. Let none offer reproof. And you thought cancel culture was new. Right? Let no one find fault. We're all a victim. Right? We're all a victim. I will not judge. Judge not lest you be judged. You ever get that from unsaved people who don't know the Bible at all? Who don't know the context, by the way, when Jesus says that? And they offer none reproof. Why? True story. Um, had a young man come to the orchard for a couple of years in a row. Got to know him a little bit. But we've had some pretty good conversations. He's Iranian. And he was taking courses to be a physical therapist. And he says to me, Todd, because I brought up the topic. He said, Todd, I says, all I see is a whole bunch of scared young American men because they don't want to say anything and be canceled within the discipline of which he was taking when he was in the mix of a whole bunch of other liberals. But that's the age we live in. In other words, no one will reprove anyone else, right? You know, better is open rebuke than love that is concealed, faithful of the wounds of a friend, but deceitful of the kisses of an enemy. We don't realize that actually we become our own enemies by not reproving anyone for sin and the idolatry that sin is. So it is, it is disease-like in the sense that the symptoms are not finding fault because no one wants to reprove anybody. And therefore, if you say anything, then you're also not inclusive, right? And then, of course, it causes more to say, well, 
just don't say anything anymore. And, I mean, my own nephew actually just literally said this to me this past Christmas. He says, and I was on this subject, he said, me and my friends have determined, and I was floored. I was literally floored. He said, me and my friends have determined that as long as we have the lifestyle we want, we're not going to make any waves. I said, what? Are you crazy? I said, then you're going to be run over or your children will be run over. Mark? All is necessary for evil to prevail is for a few good men to say nothing. That's right. That's right. And so this is the age of Hosea's day. He's, he's a remnant calling the nation to repentance and fewer listening. In fact, he's probably considered a bigot as the word is properly used against us nowadays, right? So you thought cancel culture was new. It's not. It's always been here. Um, Hosea says, my people perish for lack of knowledge. That should be a memory verse for you, right? My people perish for lack of knowledge. But i got to tag along on this. Spoken in a different chapter, Hosea says, because you have rejected knowledge. That's chapter 4. You've rejected knowledge. That's why you perish. And the question is, what kind of knowledge? The knowledge of the Lord, the one who has saved them from the Egyptians or brought them out of the wilderness, gave them a new land, a land of filled with milk and honey, and then look, in fact, I could almost see, it was like Pilate saying to Jesus, what have you done? Even your own priests are against you. Right? Look what you have done, Israel. I could hear Hosea even saying that. You perish for lack of knowledge. You have the law and you have the covenants. What have you done? Shows the power of sin, right? By the way, instead of leaving us questioning what have they done, Hosea says harlotry, wine, and new wine take away the understanding. Now, with the New Testament spin and application on it, what does Paul say? He says, be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. If the church falls, it may be for lack of knowledge and not knowing and having any knowledge of God's will within the church. And... It may be because they love their prosperity more than they do obeying the commands of God. If the foundations be destroyed, that's right. what can the righteous do? That's right. That's right. And the righteous, the answer to that actually rhetorically is we just keep speaking the truth in love and in power. Hosea summarizes Israel's condition in chapter 4, verse 12. He says, a spirit of harlotry has led them astray. So what is harlotry? What is spiritual adultery? They're basically meaning the same thing. What is it? What is spiritual adultery? That's right. That's right. Spiritual adultery is breaking the marital bond, the covenant bond that God has given to not only Israel, but even to us. The church is under a covenant, right? A new covenant. It says, I love someone else more. As simple as that. It is 
a betrayal of God's design for man, even. It is idolatry. Now this leads us back to chapter 1, the way in which God tells Hosea how God will communicate his hatred to their idolatry. Go take to yourself a wife of idolatry, idolatry and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry. Literally or figuratively, it's defined that phrase flagrant harlotry as to commit adultery. So scholars are questionable on exactly what's going on here. No one, though, disagrees with the analogy. The analogy is you have sold yourself, I finally remember Psalm 16, you've bartered for more idols. You've traded something, right? That's what David is saying in Psalm 16. You've traded for idols. What do you trade? You trade the law. You trade the covenant. You trade your own righteousness that God has given you, and you give it to an idol. But what does this mean then? Go and marry a harlot. Well, if you read Matthew Henry, Matthew Henry says... If this were a woman already married and who had committed adultery, she would have been stoned. So it can't be that. Therefore, he speculates that is a woman who is a perpetual adulterer with other wives' husbands. On the other hand, John MacArthur says, he says, no, no, no. He says, I believe that she was not a harlot before uh, Hosea married her. He said, the only way it fits is that she becomes a harlot after he marries her. For the importance of application, it doesn't matter to us so much as understanding the analogy. Yeah? Well, in a sense, I mean, Israel wasn't really a, didn't play harlotry with God until God took him, until he wedded himself to them on Sinai. Right. That's right. It, it was after that. And Actually, Moses wasn't even down from the mountain yet. Right. Israel wasn't even recognized really as a nation until they're coming out of Egypt. That's right. But his people, just for, it would, you know, to McCarthy's point, I guess, the analogy would be a little bit tighter if indeed he married them first, so to speak. What took him, as as he says he did from the day he found them, it says in other scriptures, and then sort of she began to play the harlot. So. Right. There is that. And, and he will point to, he, he says we must understand this proleptic, proleptically, which is in terms of looking at it from a future perspective. He points to chapter 3, verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, go again. Love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel. So in other words, in order for it to work, MacArthur says he marries a woman who is uh, not an adulterer yet. She commits adultery. And then even in chapter 3, we're informed that Hosea has to even take her back to be or to continue the analogy of the continued idolatry. God ushering Israel back into his grace and then them committing idolatry with the idols of the land all over again, and this being the repetitive history of the northern kingdoms, which is, by the way, the overall history of all of Israel at the end of the day in 586, and even even to 70 AD. In the modern world, an adulterer would not be considered a harlot. Now that is 
inflammatory if you want to have a nice conversation with your neighbor. Right? I remember Ken Harmon, one of the second pastor uh, that I had um, at Grace Bible Fellowship. He did a word study, and that was part of the study for that evening. And it was a word study on harlotry. And I can only tell you that you never want to actually be an adulterer Christian and then do that study until you understand the grace of God really well so you won't be depressed by how God views harlots and adultery in the same sentence. Because God puts it in the same sentence. Adultery, and again, you know, we can get deeper in this. I don't want to only because I don't even, I'm only on the third page. How am I doing? But we just look into the New Testament. You go to the mystery of the husband-wife relationship and our relationship to the Trinitarian Godhead. There's much more to this marriage and God's marriage to Israel than there is in what I can give in this right here. Pat McGuire shared a very good evening yes, this week. The sermon that. that was read at the, at the wedding of Rosaria Butterfield, who was yeah. formerly led a lesbian lifestyle. Yeah. And John Peck wrote a similar book some years back called This Momentary Marriage, where he talks about marriage as sort of a living parable right. of the Christ and his church and the gospel. Yeah, and it was, that was excellent. I'd recommend that to anybody. Yeah, that was excellent. I can hear it now, though. You know, someone unsaved reading Hosea. Jose is the most inclusive person that I know in the Bible, right? Willing to marry a harlot. I have read the Bible, and he's the most inclusive person I know. His only problem is his patriarchal mindset, right? This modern look on the book of Hosea reveals one major problem. Even though the northern Israel, northern Israel was living in a time of 710 B.C., of prosperity, sexual freedom, pluralism, paganism. Hosea's observation is relevant to us today. Go to chapter 4 of Hosea. I'm going to read 1 through 3. Listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel, for the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land because there is no faithfulness or kindness. Or knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, deception, murder, stealing, adultery. They employ violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. Oh, by the way, as he says in a different place, and it's on your feet. Therefore, the land mourns. One of my memory verses um, might explain a little bit the connection between climate change and over, supposedly anyways, and I'm not a scientist, over the expectation of over one million uh, species of animals, insects, and every other is about to uh, go extinct within the next so many years. Now, if that were to happen, though, if that were to happen, though, think of the consequence, though, of the spiritual reality and the physical reality that accompanies it in the time of Hosea. Let's finish reading. Look at verse 3. Therefore the land mourns, And everyone who lives in it languishes, along with the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky and also the fish of the sea disappear. Is it possible? We could live in another day where idolatry is so great. 
the animals, the insects, the birds, the fish disappear. Not, not impossible. Not impossible at all. I'm not trying to make a direct line, but the idea, though, is the wages of sin is death, and maybe even some animals. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ. This modern look, of course, uh, is not how we interpret uh, Hosea, but the connections, when when we look at sin, we look at our own life, and still the, the struggle with it, but we also look at the world around us. We can't help it as Christians, right? Where there is sin, there is death. Where there is lust, there are lies. Where there are idols, there is no faith. And for Israel, there is mourning and languishing. And we are languishing now. The mental health crisis is only the tip of the iceberg over the next 20 years. And if they would just simply read their Bible and saying, this is also a spiritual crisis along with the mental health crisis because you can't separate the two. They may be led to Christ because that's what sin is. It's spiritual. It's not a mental health issue. It's spiritual. It's an offense against the creator of the world. So uh, Hosea says, so the people without understanding are ruined Literally just ruined by their idolatry. So when God says to Hosea, take a wife, it is time, it is a time of flagrant idolatry. They coincide with one another. The King James translates the same phrase as great whoredom. Great whoredom. Therefore, God. God's will is fulfilled when Hosea marries Gomer and when they have three children. You got to think that in an age of the Hebrew people, when names meant something more than in our modern age, especially in the West, when you have the first boy and his name is Jezreel and it means dispersion, and when you have the next child is a girl, whose name is not pitied. And you have another boy that refers to the meaning of not my people. You think the nation may have gotten some kind of inclination. Of course, this is Hosea's children. And this is, oh, this is the sad thing. And it's one of the ethical, the ethical uh, marks that are difficult to interpret. Hosea is suffering with the nation when he is called to be a husband of a harlot. He does not know whether his children are his. Right? What a way to live out your ministry in proclaiming righteousness. Because Israel has committed spiritual idolatry, God will judge the ten tribes by removing the last six kings during Hosea's ministry. Every one of them, bad, and the last two even worse. The last two ended up becoming puppets of the Assyrians. Zechariah will be the last king through Jehu's line, so there's another nuance going on here. In other words, look at Jehu's family. When Jezreel is born, I am ending the kingship line through Jehu, 
when he is born. That's kind of a sideline going on here of what all the meaning is when Hosea has his three children with an adulterous wife. Interesting, those three kings would only rule 30 years. Divide that by six, five years apiece. That's not very long. And that's not saying every single one of them ruled five years. Leviticus 26 is important at this point. If you reject my statutes, if your soul abhors my commandments, and so break my covenant, you will sow your seed uselessly. Everything's about progeny, male progeny in the Hebrew world. You will sow it uselessly. Why? Because you're going to be taken by the Assyrians. You will sow your seed uselessly, for your enemies shall eat it up. And I will set my face against you so that you will be struck down before your enemies. This is part of the Mosaic Covenant. Spoken well before this time of 710 B.C. Serving God in an idol is not a neutral position that is sustainable. Right? If you have even minor, minimal, or small idols in your life, that's not a neutral position before God. Man never seems to learn the lessons God has historically given to man. The metaphors and the analogy that Hosea is using, uses, and God is using through him, uses uh, to describe the broken relationship between God and Israel. For she is not my wife, Hosea says. I am not her husband. I will have no compassion for her children. In other words, my family has no more hope. My children can't even be identified with the living God who created me. Therefore, Hosea prophesied during the time when the average Jew, and as Hosea says, stiffened their necks. Stiffened them. His relationship to Gomer exemplifies this. God is a God of mercy and compassion. He is slow to wrath, and yet... He has his own tipping point. His cup of wrath is filled at this point. We marvel at Hosea's patience with his wife. That symbolizes God's patience with Israel. He does not judge all men immediately. Right? He just does not. Thank God for that. Having passed over the sins previously committed, he is both just and the justifier, Paul says. He passes over sins. He doesn't wink at it. There's a difference. God does not wink at sin. He is just gracious enough not to judge us according to every sin we commit. And the beauty for the Christian is the past, present, and future sins are bought and washed in the blood of the Lamb. But we do not presume against God either. There are consequences to sin even for the Christian. Therefore, Hosea prophesied during this stiff-necked time towards the God of Israel. His relationship to Gomer is one of mercy. Hosea's predictions uh, before uh, King Sennacherib, he was the king of the Assyrians that went south to defeat the Israelites. Um, Hosea's predictions was were the final push uh, Hosea's predictions before Sennacherib is the final push to take over the nation, were spot on. He says this, The people will mourn the calf of Beth-Haven 
the thing itself will be carried away to Assyria. In other words, he's going to take your graven images and they're going to carry them, probably more for the gold than they are going to do for any other reason. We could actually go to Revelation chapter 18. I don't believe we have the time, but if we do, we'll go at the very end. You see a picture there of the spiritual Babylon mourning when God comes, his son comes to judge. Mourning over their sin. There's a place where God doesn't pity a nation and a world any longer, and they have no more capacity to repent. He hardens a heart. I believe that we're in a day and age we in, just like Pharaoh. And he does the will, does the active will of God, and then God judges him in severity for his own individual sin. And that would include nations. Yet, by the way, as all the prophets speak, God's prophets always desire the nation to be restored, and God always has a positive spin in relationship to restoration. Hosea says in chapter 10, Sow with a view to righteousness, reap in accordance to kindness, break up the fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord. The imagery is you've been plowing in a field of of idols. Over here is fallow ground of righteousness. You need to work that field as a farmer. We must ask ourselves this. Is our righteousness as fallow ground while we plow the fields of sin? Righteousness is put on. Job says, I put on righteousness and it clothed me. We put on righteousness. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ positionally. In other words, we have Christ's righteousness within us. That has made peace, right? Therefore, who are justified by faith have peace with God. Romans 5.1 Therefore, we are righteous in the presence of God through the Son. But we need to plow a different field when we are born again. A field of righteousness. It just doesn't come on us like osmosis. No, the Spirit of God works within us and we say yes to the Spirit of God and the Word of God and we start plowing in a new field after God saved us from our idols, right? How's it going, Thessalonians, brother? I thank God that you turned from idols to serve the living God. Turn to God from idols. Turn to God yeah. from idols. That's why I asked him, by the way. But that's significant, though. People think you've got to turn away from something to get to God. You go to God, and then things will be turned away from you. That's right. That's right. We must ask ourselves this. Is our righteousness as fallow ground while we plow fields of sin? Righteousness is put on. It is labored for in the fields of God's grace. Right? For the Christian, that's the case. We labor in the field for God's grace. And don't we have a parable of the master goes away. I know I'm not the master that goes away. The, 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 the owner of the farm comes in and he hires laborers, right, in the field. And he pays the, the laborer at the very end when he's hired with maybe only an hour left in the day, the same rate as he does the laborer at the first part of the day who worked through all the heat of the day. 
That's God's right. Do, does he not do what he wishes with that which is, he, is his own is the application of that parable. Sin is always crouching at the door. The seeds of it grow easily within us. Yet God's righteousness is like a farmer who sows his seed in the spring, waiting for the peaceable fruits of righteousness in the fall. But the farmer's growing season is hard. The crop is threatened by summer heat and wind and hail. The farmer labors for righteousness as he follows the Lord's direction for being a successful farmer. A righteous man, Jesus said, receives a righteous reward. And the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, Peter says. Hosea preaches with last-minute despair and hope. He knows Israel's days are numbered. The children of Israel have forsaken the fathers uh, for generations. This is not new. Hosea didn't wake up to something new. God has chosen this time to punish them for the sins of the fathers and the children's children. The Asher is on the hills the infant sacrifice and the temple prostitutes who would blame Hosea for just giving up, right? I mean, I can tell you, when I witness the gospel, I see this blank that I never ever got before 20 years ago. I'm, I told many a Christian and I told un, non-Christians as well, unbelievers, I said, listen, I, I feel like Lot in this 21st century. I feel like my soul is vexed every single day. I read a paper, watch the news, or just walk around and see what I see. It's easier to give up, but it's not fruitful. Yet in chapter 1, verse 10 and 11, and in chapter 14, God has given his prophet encouragement and hope. Hosea says in chapter 1, Yet the number of Israel will be like the sands of the sea. It will be said, You are the sons of the living God and will be gathered together. Old covenant and new covenant, both are under this promise of Abraham that God gave to him. Look out and see the stars of the sea. Do you think your evangelistic ministry is having no effect that you would even describe things to them and they will not believe? Well, guess what? As in the days of Elijah, he saved 7,000 prophets to a prophet he said this to who was in despair. And God is still saying that to you and I. Don't be in despair. He knows. Now, brother, you've got to finish this text for me. Uh, uh, I do all things for the sake of the, the elect, that they... I am become... Uh... Okay, he says, uh, I, do I endure all things for your elect's sake that they may obtain the salvation yep. which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. There you go. Is that the one? That's right. I do all things for the sake of the elect. Why? Because I look down a quarter of time that God also reminds Hosea that God said to Abraham in promise, because that's how we're saved, by promise, not by works, not by some effort, but by promise, God said, I'm going to give you progeny that is my spirit, that will be your spiritual seed, and they will be as numerous as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And that's what carries us through. God has his elect. We are blessed upon blessed being a reformed doctrines of grace church because we know God knows those who are his. So in a day that looks like ours, don't grumble. Be faithful. Plow a field of righteousness. 
Believe in the Lord that he is coming to judge the living and the dead. And he will say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. God remembers Israel the same way God remembers us. We are the same spiritual seed of Abraham and God's elect. He will not lose one of his elect. Israel never recovered from their idolatry after the Assyrians. They were done. Never to recover again. And Judah will be the same 150 years later. In fact, their sins, like David said in Psalm 16, will be multiplied because they served worthless idols. And 70 AD will be kind of the exclamation mark upon the destruction. It is not, Gary actually quoted this in John, uh, the kingdom of God would be taken away from you and be given to a nation producing the fruit of it. That was always God's plan, that he would harden the hearts of the Israelites and he would use that as an opportunity to express grace to the nations. In Romans 11, Paul says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? For I too am an Israelite. Can you imagine the disappointment the Apostle Paul experienced? about a blinded nation. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham. In the same way then, there has come also to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. A remnant and God is gracious and that's his choice. The beautiful thing is, is as Reformed believers as well, we go to Romans 9 and we don't try to find and try to build arguments against it. We are in full agreement that God and his gracious choice from Abraham, Isaac, and uh, Jacob, and all the rest that are listed there in that Romans 9 passage is God's electing grace in human history. And he chose, Aca, he, chose ja- he chose Jacob over Esau, even when Esau was the firstborn. And then someone's going to say, well, if God's the potter, and you're the clay, and he make, makes vessels of mercy, and he makes vessels of wrath. Who can resist him? And who are you, O oh man, to say to God, how to mold me this and that way? Right? Who are you? Little peon, Gentile Todd you are. Right? But we look at Romans 9, and we just... I mean, I just read it, and I say, Wow. How gracious is God to include me into his kingdom, thinking of me even before I was born, putting me in the Lamb's book of life. You know, Hosea would not know any of this. He would not really know very much about redemptive history to follow after his death, like so many of the prophets. I think many times the prophets prophesied to a degree. They just didn't know what they were saying. They were, by the unction of the Holy Spirit, speaking of things that were just too mysterious and wonderful to believe. That God would include the Gentile nations in redemptive history. Hosea relied upon the compassionate character of God, and we can too. The future is murky. We don't have all the answers. But we say with Hosea in chapter 14, I quoted this to to Gary because I was so excited about reading it uh, on the phone yesterday. We say with Hosea in 14, 3 through 8, and I'm going to condense it for you. 
Assyria will not save us. Now plug in whatever you want there for yourself. America will not save you. Western civilization will not save you. Good works will not save you. Nothing and no one can save you but Christ and him crucified. Take words with you. Remember, the context of his rebuke is, my people perish for lack of knowledge and their prosperity, their idols are withholding the knowledge that you need into, in order to persevere and repent. Take words with you, Israel. Take words with you when you go home this afternoon. Because the world's not going to save you when you go back in your house, but it's God who saves you and will save you. Because there's always this already not yet, right? We are saved and we are being saved. Return to the Lord, Hosea says. Those who live in his shadow will again raise grain and they will blossom like a vine. It is I who looks after you. From me comes your fruit. From me comes your fruit. You see, the northern kingdom lacked righteousness. That, when you live in righteousness, you live in a pleasant place in the midst of the days of habitation that God has given you to live. You want a life of peace. You want a life of tranquility. You want a life of uh, faithfulness, of kindness, and of love. Then live in righteousness. That doesn't mean that you're not going to have trouble and trial. God's going to test you. He's going to test you. But there is something about being in relationship to Christ, not only being at peace through his justifying work and him giving us his righteousness in atonement, but also walking with him in righteousness, plowing a field with him. I would like to picture maybe Jesus coming up to me in the field and saying, Todd, you're working way too hard. Here's the hoe and make a furrow. And I gave you the hoe, and now you have the capacity to be able to make that field work in production and in fruitfulness. Right? It's all of him. But there is an element of human will. It's called walking in the spirit, living in the spirit. Right? Where we obey the word of God in love, walking with Christ And seeing God produce within us the fruits of righteousness. We watch God produce fruit within us. That's what Hosea is saying. From me comes your fruit. You don't get fruit any other way. He's talking to an agrarian society. They know what it means to physically try to produce fruit in a harsh land. And God did it for them for years. He even gave them the the grapes and the farms of other of the enemies of God. And he said, now I become your own enemy. You're not living righteously. You disobeyed my covenant and my commands. So we only have a, a couple questions here. Does God judge idolatry today? 
Okay? I think we have to look at it helpfully when Paul says, he says, um, some sin reaches judgment immediately and the sin of others trail behind them. You know, we look at the bloody footprints of, you know, these rich elites who are sowing unrighteousness and supporting through their corporations, gender ideology and all these things. And we say, why, Lord? Why, Lord? All these children are being affected. I see their bloody footprints. I can tr- I can track it. And yet you haven't judged them yet. And God says back to you and I, some sins trail behind in them, but I will judge. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Right? That's a promise. That's where our contentment rise. No man, no woman will ever avoid the judgment seat of Christ. I'm wondering sometimes, could whole nations be judged like not only Israel was? It was, of course, a partial nation because it wasn't the original nation. But also could, I mean, think of it, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Medes and the Persians, the Romans, all were judged by God. Explicit, explicitly mentioned from the prophets, could God judge an entire nation today? Yes. Yeah, I think so. I don't think it's relegated. Sin is sin. And the wages of sin is death. That could be an individual person, personal death where they, they live their last breath and then they die. But also it could be the death of a nation. Absolutely. You know, I tell you, you know, uh, Daniel says, he says, uh, recognize that the Most High is sovereign over the realm of all mankind and bestows the kingdom upon whoever he wishes. Something like that. He does. What we have a hard time with is, why do we have a Joe Biden? Why do we have a Hitler? Why do we have uh, any other person who doesn't have a, a, a message of righteousness. And we say to ourselves, why does God allow that? Because he has purposes to fulfill. And we don't, and we're not given all the mysteries that God has planned, the secret mysteries left, left to him. But remember this, he's fulfilling out his redemptive plan. And we are privileged to be part of the elect praying that God would save the rest of his elect and then even so Jesus come come quickly to the glory of his name let's finish in prayer Father we thank and praise you for your love for O Lord the ministry of the prophets of old but even as we stand as can I say minor prophets Lord who still have a calling to proclaim the excellencies of Christ the gospel of the kingdom and the power of God unto salvation and also of condemnation. Give us the strength to be bold like Hosea in an age of wickedness and idolatry. To speak out boldly and that, O oh Lord, we know that we are still fulfilling your purposes. And, O oh Lord, even if that means we're persecuted. May we speak the truth in love and to the glory of God in Christ. Amen. Yeah.